This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller, his guy Friday Christian Blatt, and superstar producer Lindsay Floyd. And now, it's him, Dennis Miller. Hey folks, welcome to the Dennis Miller Option. Beautiful day up here in Santa Barbara. It was predicted to be rainy all day yesterday and all day today. And little rain yesterday, but today a splendid William Cameron Menzies gone with the wind-like sky. And it just reminded me how hard it is to predict weather two hours down the road, much less the future demise of the planet Earth. So I think we're throwing darts as I look at this sunny, beautiful, rainy day. Wild morning for me, up early as usual, working on, uh, well, I've told you, Christian, my social distancing depiction of The Last Supper. And uh, <laughs> I started on the FDSA side of the scene instead of the JKL semi side. You know, all the influences yeah. with the most followers hang out over on that side. So, due to the IMAXian nature of the project, I ran out of space on my standard size canvas right after getting Peter's head in. I had to match the seam right there and wallpaper another piece of canvas to eventually include, you know, that trio of Andrew, James Minor, and Bartholomew who are way out there near the kitchen door at Spago. And here is the freaky part. By doing that, the seam ran right down the center of Judas. And I, th I thought this vividly conveyed the duality of his moral plight. Uh, am I wrong? <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. All right, joining us. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that joke out while it's still fresh in my head. I loved all of it. <laughs> joining us now, ah, little baseball. Jeez, I was all set to go to spring training. Uh, I know you were. <laughs> and that got whacked. And, uh, and God, we'd be in the throes of it right now. First season, uh, first couple weeks of the season, the Mets. Yeah, would the Mets be would already be already. ten games under five hundred. It would have been great. <laughs> but joining us now, Christian, help me with the cat's name, Brad. Brad Baluchian. And if I got it wrong, Brad, you correct me. No, that's spot on. Has Has Brad come into the studio? Uh, no, we're... Oh, okay, we're, I was going to say, I, I would hope you would have told him that you've got Corona jumping off you like the dust on Pigpen and the Charles Schultz peanuts screw. No, I, I did tell him, and that didn't entice him, so, uh, no, he's connected remotely, as they say, in this day and age. <laughs> well, I love this idea, because I, I, it's called the Wax Pack. Love the name first off, because it hips it up to the Rat Pack. On the open road in search of baseball's afterlife. I read that book recently. Remember, Christian, where the cat went to all the stadiums in all sports? And that was interesting. Oh, uh, one lucky fan. Uh, that guy's name was Rich O'Malley. Yeah. So I, I love these roadies. Uh, well, let's say welcome to Brad. Hey, Brad. How you doing? Hey, doing well, Dennis. How you doing? Fine. Thank you. The uh, For more information on the book, uh, which we will explain in a second, Wax, W-A-X, Pack, P-A-C-K. Book, you know that, dot com, waxpackbook.com. I love baseball roadies. Occasionally, Hanks and I will go on a baseball roadie with the kids, and it's always one of the best times of my year. And well, why don't you explain the concept to the listeners, Brad? Sure. Uh, so I grew up, like so many, collecting baseball cards in the 80s and, you know, buying all those wax packs with the sticks of gum in them. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I always want see my I was always a pretty unusual kid in that my favorite players were the underdog types, the guys that were the bench warmers. And I always wanted to I always wanted to know what happened to those guys, like, you know, what, what sort of the ultimate where are they now? 
And I knew that if I could get a, a pack of cards, a wax pack that had never been opened, that was still sealed, that would give me a nice random sample of players from that era. And that just by probability, most of the guys would be the kind of underdogs that I grew up idolizing. So I said, okay, let me get, let me get a pack and whatever 15 guys are in here, these will be the guys that I tracked down all across the country. And so I ended up driving over 11,000 miles in seven weeks to find all these guys. Well, that sounds like a, a labor of love. Did you have anybody sit sidecar with you at any point, or was it all uh, Kerouacian on the road, sort yeah. of solo? Well, originally, it was my two, my two best friends were going to make the journey with me, and it would have been much more of kind of a buddy book. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, their, their cooler heads prevailed, and they, they had to go back to regular life. And so after the first chapter in uh, Visalia, California, they, they bailed to go to Santa Barbara and L.A., and uh, I continued on. Ah, that's where I'm at today, Santa Barbara and Visalia. Uh, were there tears when you left each other because all the onions are grown there? It must have been breaking <laughs> up. It was hard to do. No, I actually passed out on the side of the freeway the first night of the trip. No, no, no joke or exaggeration. So the only tears were the pounding in my head the next morning as I woke up to realize that they had absconded back to greener pastures. I think Janet Lee and Psycho passed out on the side of the highway the first night near <laughs> Visalia, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Who was in Visalia? And let me tick off the uh, the Baker's Dozen plus two of the cards. I know most of these guys. Uh, Carlton Fisk, Doc Gooden, Rance Mullenix, Jamie, I don't know if it's Kokenauer or Kokenauer. Kokenauer. Steve Yeager, Gary Templeton, that's a pretty hardy breed here, Gary Pettis, Randy Reddy, don't remember him, Don Carmen, do remember, Vince Coleman, Lee Mazzilli, Pac Hebner, who I followed on the Bucks for a long time, Sutcliffe, who went over from the Dodgers to the, uh, the, the Cubbies and had that crazy year, and Al Collins, deceased, I think I remember Al Collins to the degree, I think he had a stroke sort of like uh, Al Oliver. Anyway, uh, that's a pretty good pack of 15, and who'd you queue up with initially in Visalia? That was Rance Mullenix. And uh, it's funny, his name has turned into something that sounds like some dry cleaning process or something, but tell us, <laughs> tell us about Rance's career and how he is now. Yeah, well, Rance, he grew up in the Central Valley, and uh, then he went off, played in Toronto, eventually came back to where he came, where he came from. And he was actually the easiest guy. You know, people ask me all the time, how, how did I find these guys? And it definitely varied in how difficult it was. But with Rance, it was as simple as a Google search because we all know that the easiest people's phone numbers to find are realtors. You know, their phone numbers are everywhere. So mm -hmm. I, I Googled sure. him and he is a realtor now. And so there right there was his cell phone. And so it was simple as, you know, dialing him up and uh, introducing myself. I love the fact that, you know, realtors always need some sort of uh, story just because there's a lot of downtime. And to be in the show at one point it must be a great door opener for him to some degree. How's he doing? Now he's doing great. He got divorced shortly after he finished playing, which is a common theme with these guys. But he sort of, you know, I, what I appreciated about Rance was he was very, very, very open about talking about his mistakes and his regrets. And he talked about how he was, um, you know, when he was playing, he was just never, never there enough for his two kids and his wife. And he says he, has, he had a quote, something like, 
you can be home and a mile away. And he mm-hmm. ended up, uh, after he was done playing, meeting someone and getting married, having two more kids. And I think he's kind of found a lot of peace in the second time around, you know, second sort of second chance. Yeah. Well, handing the keys to the kingdom to 22-year-olds is, uh, or whatever he was is, right. you know, it's a recipe for disaster. These guys are on the road. Uh, they, they very infrequently divorce during their tenure because the wife's at home taking care of the cubs in the cave. Right. And then they're just players with some money and some cachet because they're major leaguers. And, you know, women on the road are quite frankly used to meeting guys who are, you know, security guards overnight at right. uh, you know, the local warehouse or something. So it's good to see that he had a uh, bit of an epiphany. I would imagine Vince Coleman was easy to find. Is Was he still in the tarp uh, that he rolled over? <laughs> I hope you're being sarcastic because he was the the hardest of everybody. In fact, I, I call. I, well, you remember the story about him, of course, don't you? Oh, I do. I mean, I I was I was five years old, but I know. Yeah, he got rolled up in eighty in the eighty five World Series. <laughs> One of the great all time <laughs> baseball stories. That's Which like is, that makes Fred Merkel look like he's a Walt Alston for God's sakes. How do you get rolled up in a tarp? Especially when you're the the, the greatest base dealer of yeah. of the era. Tell me about the the Arthur Conan Doyle on Finding Vince. How did you track him down? Well, I called that chapter Vincent Van Gogh. (laughs) That's funny. Because he liked to call himself Vincent Van Gogh during his his days Mm -hmm. of great larceny with with the Cardinals. I did manage to reach him on the phone before the trip. And he simply said, "Uh, I'm not interested. And then I immediately tried to follow up and say, but, you know, really, I'm just looking for a little bit of time. And he very sternly said, Brad, I'm not interested. So I, for Vince, I had to go, uh, when I was on the road, I went to Jacksonville where he grew up and I found his childhood home and his church and his high school. And this may have been a little extreme, but I remember I took a picture of his home and texted it to him and said, you know, are you still sure you don't want to talk to me? Which I'm sure he was highly disturbed that I was now standing outside his childhood home. Yeah, like a stalker. Right. Yeah. But I was still able to write about, you know, where he came from. I just happened to run into some people in his old high school that went to school with him. So I was able to kind of tell his story uh, without even speaking to him. But he's, he's known for... I think kind of being a, a legend in his own mind, and uh, yeah, but also think about being a legend in your own mind, and then the wide chasm between that and being known for the ultimate goofball thing, getting caught up in a tarp. Right. Uh, so I'm sure his trigger is when he hears somebody wants to talk to him, he knows that's going to come up, and uh, it's not quite Buckner-esque, but I'm certainly sure he doesn't want to be uh, right. Which is he probably ridicules his, his own self in his head, and uh, it's kind of too bad because if there's one thing that I that I did in approaching these guys, it was to not talk about the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Now oh, that's interesting. Good for you. I made it clear when I would meet with them, I had a big thick folder of all the articles from their career that I had printed out, and I would put it in front of them and say. This is I've read this whole file on you and I feel like I know nothing about you because, you know, these guys are trained to speak in cliches and right, right. they have prepared answers for everything they think you're going to ask. So instead of asking, you know, Lee Mazzilli about the 1986 World Series, if I ask mm-hmm. him, you know, what what kind of socks he likes to wear or, you know, what his dad was like, you know, he's completely I found that by doing that, these guys ended up opening up a lot more. Wow, what a nice tack to take. Uh, it makes me want to read it 
even more. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I know, certainly follow baseball enough, and our guest can do the rest. Brad Baluchian. The book is The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. I'm kindling this <laughs> right after. And I guess Vince Coleman, uh, to put a punctuation on it, probably when the fastest guy in the league discovers he has feet of clay, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the inner dilemma must royal him at some point. It was Carlton still standing there in the in the box, uh, waving the ball in, or where'd you find Carlton Fisk? At? Well, so he also through his people, he was one of the players that still has people. Wow. He told me that uh, no, not interested. So for Carlton, I found out from a source where he golfs in this really private club in Sarasota, Florida, and I posed as a millionaire homebuyer to try to sneak my way onto the golf course to ambush him. <laughs> What I didn't, what I didn't anticipate in my grand scheme was I was approaching this again very posh, exclusive resort in a 2002 Honda Accord with 150,000 miles on the odometer and California license plates, which doesn't exactly help the no. the lie that I'm trying to perpetuate that I am a you know jet setter intent on buying a five million dollar home. Right, um, but it was still a lot of fun. So when you came upon him, did he talk or was he <laughs> rancorous? Well, so a couple things. I actually he unfortunately wasn't there that day, so I ended up getting all the way into the clubhouse, being left alone, where exactly where I wanted to be. And you know, frankly, if he had been there, I have still to this day have no idea what I would have said to him because, again, what do you ask Carlton Fisk that he hasn't already been asked? So I was just going to probably ask about orchids because he's a known orchid collector and I'm a scientist and I thought, eh, we could talk some, you know, uh, pollination techniques and, you know, that would probably be just as interesting as being asked, being asked about the home run again. Well, listen, pollination techniques is what led to the Mullenix divorce. Quite <laughs> He says, no, you know, I, I pushed him on that and he said, you know, I, as he said, it wasn't what you think is what is basically what Rance said, he, you know, cl claims to have been one of the boy scouts in that era. But um, I, I think they must have a painting somewhere in the Sarasota Golf Club of <laughs> Fisk, uh, who usually plays a power fade, hitting a draw, and then standing there in the tee box and waving it in <laughs> right. back right. into the fairway. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I ran into Doc Gooden down at Port St. Lucie two years ago. Sweet man, but uh, still fragile, and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I felt for him. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you? Where where did you – is that the place you found Doc? He's down there so each year at seems. Doc at this point – so this so the trip was in, in 2015, and at that point he had had three years of sobriety and, you know, seemed like he was doing really well. And um, he was the only player that demanded that I pay him, and he wanted five, $500 to talk to him. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but of course I'm going to write about – I'm going to put that, you know, full disclosure in the book. And I get to Long Island, Westbury, uh, New York, and I'm in his living room actually interviewing his son, Little Doc, and he he no-shows. He completely, the next two days was AWOL. His son was trying to track him down. I oh, end up going to this uh, personal appearance where, I mean, you literally couldn't script a more tragic scene where you've got literally a, a, a group of nuns that had bust in from a nearby convent and a kid in a wheelchair and, you know, waiting for Doc to show up. And, you know, there's the empty chair at the front of the room. So mm. very, uh, you know, another chapter, another chapter in the, uh, in the tragedy of Doc. Yeah. At least uh, he was, uh, 
sober enough to realize that uh, due to the even worse PR, the Duvalier family had to name the child Little Duck instead of Baby Duck. Because, uh, that, that, that really puts the whammy on the kid. You're starting to see a theme here, Dennis, that the, 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 <laughs> the, the, guys, the guys that were the biggest stars, um, you know, were the most, perhaps the most uh, troubled or had the hardest time coming down off the pedestal in, in post-baseball. Yes. But the guys that, frankly, the guys that make the book, this is, you know, very tortoise in the hair. Mm-hmm. The most accomplished guy post baseball is, in fact, Jaime Kokenauer, who had all of four seasons in the big leagues, but stepped the day he he retired, traded in his his uh, cleats for a pair of dress shoes, and was in there working for a top accounting firm on day one. Oh, great! Uh, tell me about Kokenauer. Where where'd you find him? He was amiable, willing to talk, and he's doing well now. Kokenauer was so doting that I'm like about to pass out in a in a crappy motel in Elk City, Oklahoma. Well, you might have met Doc Gooden there, quite frankly. <laughs> I get a text from him <laughs> saying, uh, hey, Brad, uh, my wife Ginny and I want to invite you to a 4th of July barbecue at our house. There's going to be fireworks. You know, please, if you if you have someone oh, with you, they're invited as well. It was like the most sort of avuncular, you know, doting thing that mm-hmm. had happened to be the whole trip. And then when I get there, he's so accommodating. And at the same time, you know, you can see how he didn't have that edge that makes a lot of the other guys in the pack that allowed them to be perhaps more successful in baseball. And, and another thing that a lot of these guys like Rick Sutcliffe and Don Carmen and Randy Reddy, Rick still in the public eye, right? Or doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. They confided in me that they had, um, these guys, how many of them had been abused by their fathers or abandoned by their fathers. And, you know, we're talking earlier about what it's like to hand the keys to the kingdom to a 22 year old, but, not only are you doing that, but these are also guys that just didn't have the parenting that they needed. Mm-hmm. And to to hear how someone like Sutcliffe weaponized that hurt and that anger from his father, who was a race car driver, having sped out and and literally left the family, um, abandoned them. You know, he talked about how after that happened, when he got to Dodgers camp and he met Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, none of those guys scared him at all mm-hmm. because. He, you know, he nothing could nothing could affect him more after what what his father yeah. did to him. But then how he used that to make himself a more intimidating pitcher. Well, anytime you ask your dad if you can have the car tonight, and you hear him fishtailing out of the driveway, um, it's right. uh, you, you, it's a seminal moment in a young man's development. Speaking of Dodgers, yeah. uh, is Steve Yeager perchance uh, time sharing with Clint Malarchuk as they both are two guys who have caught the big wood right in the carotid <laughs> artery? I think the old Buffalo Sabres goalie. <laughs> That's right. Uh, where's the eggs at now? Yeah, Boomer. He's uh, he's right there in uh, Granada Hills, running a Jersey Mike sub shop. Beautiful. I like a nice Jersey Mike's. Yeah, he's uh, he's great. I mean, Jaeger is exactly what you expect. You know, he's brash, he's outspoken, he's friendly. Uh, but again, surprising that I think because I approached someone like Jaeger, who you know, of course, he's expecting me to ask about the the, the infield from the seventies and Tommy Lasorda and all that. And instead, I ask about his dad, who was a bus driver, and ends up telling me about how his father was was an alcoholic and how he was hmm. so drunk the, the first time he went to see him play in Cincinnati because Jaeger grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, his dad got so drunk he passed out in the clubhouse during the game while oh, Jaeger Jesus. was playing. Jesus. And, you know, and again, you, you, you see how these... But then it was actually really touching. I got to interview one of his sons, Evan, who's a 
catcher himself following in the old man's footsteps and he you know to see how jaeger interacts and treats his son breaking that cycle that yes. you know was done to him very very touching well there listen that's the called shot of real life isn't it that's the heroics right there where you don't hit the home run for the kid in the hospital but you are there when your son comes home at night and uh breaking that cycle one of the hardest things to do so uh, there's the hall yeah, of fame behavior right there Forget hitting for the cycle, breaking that cycle, right? <laughs> exactly. Good for you. We're talking to the very quick, pithy Brad Belukjian. His new book is The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. For more information, and like I said, I can't wait to read it, waxpackbook.com. Let me see. Go down the list here. We've talked Fisk, Gooden, Mullenix, Kokenauer, Jaeger. Templeton, you watched some kung fu films with Gary. How was that? He was a great player uh, for for a five year period there. That was one of the best players on the planet, right? Tempe, one of the most misunderstood guys too from that era. So uh, really, the the highlight of that chapter is we really dive into that incident in 1981 where he got into all this hot water with Whitey Herzog as he flipped off the crowd mm -hmm. and. He gets kicked off the team and then he gets traded for Ozzie Smith and kind of exiled to San Diego. But Templeton clearly wanted to talk about that because in its and I went back and I looked at all the reporting in all the papers from that incident. And it's really um, sad to see that Well, what, what, what he told me was that what prompted all that was all these guys came down to the front rail and are just yelling the N word at him. Mm hmm. And so that's what he was reacting to. And what Templeton understandably is so upset about is that his manager, the other players, no one in in the media reported that 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 had happened. You know, they only told his, talked about his reaction. They didn't tell what prompted it. And so he gets kind of portrayed as this, you know, this this kind of nut job who went off the rails, but you don't know, you never knew what, what prompted it. So well, anytime you're looking for backup on a racial accusation from a manager named Whitey, yeah. it's uh, you, you might not be there for you. Uh, I know. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and so, so he, he told me about that and then we went back to his house and we, uh, he, he, uh, yeah, he loves to watch Kung Fu movies. He was, he was fascinated by the choreography and, you know, just, really enjoying that. And then I, I forced him to watch a couple innings of the 1984 World Series, and he, he got pretty sick of that pretty fast. So mm -hmm. right back to Kung Fu. God, I remember Templeton being a, really a great player, uh, unless my memory's clouded or something. But he seems, uh, um, it seems in my mind's eye that he was one uh, hell of a player. And then he got to San Diego, where ironically he was given his brown belt, and it doesn't look nearly as good on a baseball uniform uh, as it does on a kung fu gi. <laughs> Gary Pettis, I remember from the Angels, he could pick it in center, couldn't he? I mean, like Paul Blair, I remember him being able to go back and make the play. Yeah, was Gary. Five gold gloves, I believe. And Gary was, I was excited because he went to the college that I taught at at the time. I teach at Merritt College now in Oakland at the other community college. Laney College is where I, I was teaching and uh, where Gary went to school. So I I was looking forward to, you know, talking mm -hmm. Oakland with him. But um, but he, at the, at the time of the trip, was, and he still is, coaching for the Houston Astros. So hmm. when I get to when I got to Houston to to try to meet up with him, uh, I was told by their PR guy that uh, that AJ Hinch, the manager, had issued a gag order for on all the coaches, and so you know, yeah. it wasn't Gary's choice, but he wasn't going to be able to talk to me. So 
Instead, I got. I, saw, I thought something was up there when I saw Ginger Baker listed as a coach, and I thought, uh, <laughs> why, "Why are the Astros bringing him?" <laughs> I managed to get uh, an audience with his brother Stacy, and so I was again. I was able to still tell his story, and and uh, even without speaking mm-hmm. to him directly. Now here's somebody I always loved, Puck Hebner. I remember him being, I think, a grave digger out of the Boston area. He was a tough guy. I remember he never went to a foot brace, and nobody fouled more fucking balls off their instep when I watched him than Puck Hebner. And uh, where's where's he at right now? Yeah, the hacker. So when I met with Steve Yeager, his and I showed him all the guys in the pack. He said, "When you see Richie, tell him we need to go chase some nurses." So you know. <laughs> you know that these guys uh, may not have been teammates, but they were they were teammates back in the seventies in a way. <laughs> yeah, it was knights of the knights of the round. Yeah. <laughs> but how did Al Cowens die? I see the great uh, Kansas City Royal Al Cowens passed. Uh, yeah, how did he, it happen? It seems like he would still be relatively young. He died at fifty. Really, really sad. Uh, he had congestive heart failure, hmm. but he grew up in in the projects in Watts and and uh, in Compton. And so obviously, you know, I couldn't interview him. So I went and uh, found, basically retraced his his childhood, went to Compton, went to Centennial High and stumbled into a uh, alumni association meeting where I happened to meet someone who knew his cousin. And the next day, his cousin, Billy, took me all around Watts and Compton and showed me, you know, where they grew up and uh, told me some of his story, and uh, and then his son uh, Al's son Purvis also was able to fill in some of the blanks with uh, with Al. So I end up I end up uh, finishing the book in the Inglewood Cemetery, sort of like a scene that final scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where you're you got the mm-hmm. Ark of the Covenant in that giant warehouse with everything that looks the same. Because I didn't all I knew was that his his grave his headstone was somewhere in this general area. So I spent a couple hours wandering, trying to find Al, and uh, I'm glad to say I succeeded in the end. So that's kind of the the roll credits of the book. Yeah, nice punctuation. I, it seems to me I remember Al Collins wore glasses. He did, yep. Yeah. Two guys, and uh, we're, we'll wrap it up here, but I'm fascinated by the uh, journey, and I'm fascinated by the book. The author is Brad Blukjian. The book is The Wax Pack on the Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. In short, he takes a plastic pack or plastic uh, wax packet of baseball cards he had from his youth i believe in the mid 80s and it's uh, 15 cards in it and he tracks down the 15 players to the extent that he can i, I think he's probably lucky he didn't come across carl fisk because i could have got the well actually i did so well there's there's another chapter called catching carlton where i give i give fisk my autograph and you know i'm kind of surprised he didn't throw at me surprised you didn't get a fist back Fisk's <laughs> fist waxpackbook.com is the site the last two i don't know the one cat at all randy ready is he a, is he a padre is that he is yeah that's the only thing that might be in my head was he a padre it's a deep cut you but yeah deep in your subconscious you remember yeah but i don't remember much about him i hope he was a bullpen pitcher who could go after three warm-up pitches because he's certainly perfectly named as randy ready <laughs> well he was the next best thing he was a utility player that could go at pretty much any position <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Randy, great guy. Actually, uh, so I meet, met, met up with him in Dallas, and um, I didn't know, there was no way for me to know that he was in the midst of a second divorce. So I took out my phone and showed him how to use Tinder. 
which was uh, kind of a kind of a fun wow. thing to do with an ex-ball player. His his wife uh, ironically sued him for alienation of affection and called him Randy, not always ready. So right, that's, uh, that's what happened. He was. Uh, <laughs> and lastly, the uh, the great Don Carmen. I hear he had a zoo trip with Don. Yeah, the zoo with Don. Um, and you may not believe this, but he was actually my hero, my favorite player as a kid. Oh, you're kidding me. Give me a CV again, because I, I vaguely, I, I think I remember as a Red Sox for a little bit. Is that possible or no? Uh, no, he was Phillies. He pitched oh, about okay. 10 years for some terrible Phillies teams, and he was sort of a middle-of-the-rotation guy. And uh, but he was my favorite. So I, I, I as a kid, I wrote him birthday cards and made plaques out of his baseball cards. And so it was definitely a pretty surreal moment to to meet him. But uh, but not only that, he, he so now he is um, the staff psychologist for Scott Boris, who's the you know, the, the mega agent. Oh, great. Yeah. No, I mean, he's he's an outlier. He's definitely a, a special kind of cat. He uh, finished playing and then and then got his bachelor's in psychology, his master's in sports psychology, and now working on a doctorate. So oh, good for him. Definitely a, a different breed, smart guy. Yeah, there's a life fulfilled right there. Now, Philly boy, I'm trying to think where you, did you go back as early as, when you sound younger, you don't remember the year Larry Heisel and uh, money came up. Uh, do you remember those years, or are you more Bull Lazinski and guys like that? Yeah, I'm a little more 80s, but I know, I know the names, Don Money, and yeah, I've heard those before. And then Jimmy Bunning went over there and was a beast for years before he ended up as a senator. Can you imagine a guy who's in the crucible of baseball and ends up being a pussy senator? Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I just don't know how you do that. You go from life on the griddle to life with the morons in the uh, garage with the uh, low idol and the, the carbon monoxide. Brad Baluchian, the book is The Wax Pack on the Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. For more information, go to waxpackbook.com. Dot com. Brother, I love the premise, and you sell it well, and I can't wait to read it and uh, keep me posted on your next one, man. You got you got anything in mind? Not not quite sure yet, but... Or are you going back to teaching? Well, I'm still, well, I'm still, I'm still teaching now, so now I have to get used to everything online, right? But um, we'll see. I, I, I do look forward to hearing what you think, Dennis. I can't wait to read it. I really enjoyed our talk. Thanks. Uh, good to meet you, Brad. Thanks a lot. All right. Later, Gator. I was on. Yeah, I know. I, I just sat back and I'm like, I can't believe I get to watch this motherfucker work. Just slapping him around. What? That was tight. <laughs> oh. Talking a little ball. What else are we going to do? We got some voicemails. Play him. Well, I'll tell you this one. We got voicemail number one. A fella named Randy. I don't know much about him other than that. I've called before. I'm your fighter pilot friend uh, all of us in the squadron are huge huge dennis miller fans we have a question uh, you live in santa barbara i think as did jonathan winters wondering did you know jonathan winters well and what's your candid opinion of his humor again uh we love you we're the boys over here fighting for you and we know you love us thank you my brother I've got menches as fans, Christian. That's right. I mean, if they're your fan, they're automatically Top in mensch status. Yeah, I'm going to hate to see the new Top Gun cruise has to, you know, ride alongside the jet in some sort of fucking Vespa to save gas. <laughs> well, he's got to have a green jet as part of the problem. Mm. 
Highway to the green energy zone. <laughs> Jack off times we live in. Thank you, my brother out there. Jonathan, he made a big dent on me when I was a kid. Probably the first guy outside the host of the uh, local horror film in Pittsburgh, Chili Billy Cardilly, who I thought of as a star and got and thought he was funny. Because uh, I remember he had a weekly show and they would... Uh, throw him a object improv with it during the final credits or during the final act. And usually I would say that was stagecraft, obviously, but with Jonathan, I really sensed it seemed to be, uh, well, listen, he was enough of a genius that you gave him the benefit of the doubt, and they threw him an underinflated tire tube one night, and a big one, from looked like a truck, and he folded it in half and uh, stuck his head out of the quote-unquote whale lips at that point and look, pretended he was Jonah, you know. And uh, as a kid, I just <laughs> delighted in that. So I used to see Jonathan down at the corner. Uh, there's a place here where we all eat. And I never, I don't like to bug people, but I was leaving one day, and Richard Widmark was there too, who seemed like a lovely guy. And I stopped on the way out, and I said, all the boys... And I uh, said to Widmark, what are you going to do, push Jonathan down the stairs in the wheelchair? And uh, everybody laughed. So I grew to be John, uh, <laughs> friends with Jonathan a little bit. And then we started having breakfast together. And it was so funny. I'd say, uh, you know, all I had to say was, you know, he'd order a certain thing. I think he ordered cereal, but then one day he changed. And I said, changing, and he's off, 20 minutes. You know, something about protein. and You know, c complete character. And he, only, he didn't like, uh, or he, you know, with me, I would ask him to do Marty Frickert, and, and uh, he, he made it look like we were too good of friends for me to demand that or something. <laughs> so he, But he was so fucking funny and pilty and sweet. And then one day, I remember I went in. This is funny. The place was empty, except there were three people in there. I saw Jonathan across the way. I was much more into my breakfast than he was he sat down and he didn't look over at me because he had his look down you know even jonathan winters doesn't want to be on all the time so he's looking down reading or sitting at his table i notice him i'm within two minutes of leaving so i don't stay join me but i pay my bill i get up and there's a guy halfway down the luncheonette now this luncheonette's probably 25 feet by 25 feet it's not that big and sitting by the window i look over and it's michael keaton he's looking down I'm looking down. I look up and I go, hey, you two fuckheads. We're the, I know we're all dodging regular folk. We're the only people in here. Just joking. <laughs> I remember everybody <laughs> laughing so hard because we all were looking down reading. You know, and there's nobody who are less affected by show business than those two guys. They're usually amiable blokes, but I parodied it saying that everybody was trying to not, you know, Meet with the great unwashed. We're the only people in the, in the place. <laughs> Such assholes. And uh, we got together and had uh, fun. I remember laughing a lot at that because Michael Keaton is really bojangly. He's one of he's one of those ideal people that I would say, who wants to play with Jonathan? It would be Michael because he's got that funny look. You know, when he finds something funny, he'll look at you and just like explode in laughter. And Jonathan delights in that. That fans in flames, and all of a sudden you're, you know. You're sitting there with D'Artagnan and Aramis, and they're just killing you. So uh, I love Jonathan. I thought he was really sweet. I can't say I knew him. I know Robin just, 
and it must have been his granddad or his uncle or something. He just loved him. And um, I'm trying to think. No, I was never with the two of them together. Um, but I know Robin just would rave about him and call him and absolutely delighted in him. And uh, he was a certifiable genius, and with genius goes the uh, sidecar of pain. So I don't quite know all of Jonathan's stories, but uh, I do know he, be he went to art later in life. And which reminds me, last night I was watching the brilliant, I think, Clint Eastwood's maiden directoral effort, Escape from Alcatraz. Or maybe it was Play Misty for me, probably not. But one of his earlier, and uh, there's that scene in there. Patrick McGowan's really good in there as a sadist. And he takes the one guy, I think his name's Doc's, uh, painting away from him. And he ends up going into the shop and just sawing his hands off and so I, I think a lot of guys who are geniuses at some point will go to the art thing to express themselves. And uh, I know Jonathan was really big into that. Because I wonder if his paintings, I'll have to look and see if there's anything available. But uh, if you want, uh, if you're a young person and you're not that familiar with Jonathan and you want to tap into his demented madness, go to, surprisingly, because I don't think it's a great film, but kind of an important film in a way because it had all the guys in there. Mad, 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 mad world. When he comes upon the gas station where the two guys who have fucked him and left him on a wobbly bike and destroys the gas station is, uh, well, it reminds me of Citizen Kane where... Charles Foster Kane destroys the room in almost a Frankensteinian furor after his old lady splits, and Jonathan does that to an entire shell station, it seems to me. Absolutely great. But a sweet man, I can tell you, the, the loveliest of guys. What else we got? We got another uh, voicemail. Sandy in Boise, Idaho, calling about another funny man. Voicemail number two. I really loved the show with Dana uh, the other day. That was terrific. And I keep thinking maybe if you three guys are on stage, you know, and, and you get Dana to do a Howard Cosell and Dennis is Dennis, and maybe Frank Caliendo can drop into his multitude of voices, including a Gruden, I think that'd be kind of fun. But uh, seriously, you didn't mention the Denver show, Dennis. we got to have something to look forward to, something fun and happy, and it's going to be a great show. Anyway, I'm going to enjoy the show. Take care. We'll see you all in Denver. Oh, thank you, my friend. You know, I am on a need-to-know basis where I usually check my schedule, which is not chock-a-block to begin with, maybe a week or two weeks out. And Christian, do you happen to know when I'm in Denver? Yeah, that's the... Uh, is this a, I'm doing a show with Spade and Caliendo. Is that... Uh, yeah, the that's one the show. It's early September. Uh, I can uh, I can look up the exact date. I want to say it's September 5th, but it's early September with you, Spade, and Caliendo in Denver. Yeah, hopefully we'll be there. And I think if we're not there... What, it would be the world will have ended, right? Yeah, I mean, it, nobody should be able to get in the way of comedy. Do you see the world ending? No. Next, uh, I mean, maybe. Or do you see the us getting a fix on this? Maybe all the people in it, but uh, the world will still be there. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, that's what I'm asking you. But the environmentalists must love this. I can't believe yeah. the environmentalists aren't queuing up to get coughed on you know because they always talk about how man's the blight on the planet they should go out there and absorb all this if you really care get out there and breathe in deeply in crowded places and take it out of the air and <laughs> save the planet and if you want to go to a crowded place on september 12th it's september 12th in denver at the belco theater triple threat comedy night frank caliendo david spade and dennis miller 
Well, that'll be a good show. Uh, I think it's a killer, and Frank's a killer. And uh, I haven't worked in a while, but I'm. I, I I just go back to that interview I just did, folks. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I mean, really? Why don't you just sit on stage and play that interview twice, and get, that's my time. Holy. What else? <laughs> uh, voicemail number four, John from Boston. Wait a second, but this is only the third one. Can you do this for me, just so I can keep order in an otherwise unordered universe? Can you refer to the voicemail? It doesn't matter to me what you have it on as your sheet, since I don't see sure. the sheet. But the order you present them to me, I think, four. Am I going okay. daft? This seems like the third thing we've played. This so is you're the saying third you one feel it's playing. more key what the notation is in the sheet you have in front of you well, that I don't. Then telling me this is so that uh, Lindsay and uh, Dennis Stimplinski know which one to play. That's what the numbers are for. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That I understand. I understand. Yeah. Well, then let's pretend we're in Montreal and you have to do it in French and English. Say this would be four for Stamper Cat. and uh, Lindsay and uh, three for you, Dennis. Can we do that? <laughs> because you have to do that up in uh, Quebec, even if it's a Bazooka Joe bubblegum fortune. You have to put it in French. And, you know, so yeah. the, thus, the Bazooka Joe bubblegum inserts in Quebec as big as the CBS uh, receipt that I get. If I go in and buy a tube of travel toothpaste, I get the 14-foot-long fucking Cleopatra's rolled up in it rug receipt from CVS in case I want to return something or, you know, escape from prison and hang off it. Go ahead. <laughs> Lindsay? So wait, look over real quick before she's able to get it off her lip. Did she bogey there? Because that, just from afar, I'm telling you, there could have been a little, that, was, that had corona written all over it. Yeah. Oh, you're it's, not with her. No. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, if there was anybody to not be in a room with, it's 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 Lindsay and her dog. We need to, yeah, we need to quarantine quarantine Lindsay and her dog. No, no, say quarantine. We need a new word. <laughs> Everybody it's like turpentine. She doesn't go outside. Yeah, yeah. No, quarantine's better. Give me a quart of quarantine, and then who will deliver it? Some of those quarantines over there. Give it, give them a couple bucks and have the quarantines run the quarantine over. Give me the fucking voicemail, three or four, you little jag off. John from Boston, number four, Mr. Stimplinski. Or three. I heard your invention for an eyeglass pouch is brilliant, but I have an improvement. Simply a nipple ring you can hang your glasses on. <sighs> that is beautiful. Thought so. <laughs> but it depends. I, you know, I really think if you're up, it only works up to a point. Because if you're, I, I would say that breakdown would be a 2040, the frame lens of Wadapaw still light enough to not rip the nip. But if you're up at 2200, you know, the Coke bottles and you get a little heft on there, all of a sudden you're, you know, uh, in for the night with Charlotte Rampling from the Night Porter participating in some sort of uh, weird uh, denipolization. Or on Aureolics, as we put it under the master heading. So, yeah, if you're 2040, I like the idea for glasses hanging off a nipple ring. If you're up at 2200, if you're, uh, you know, doing, who would be the person who would stand out in your head as having the thickest glasses in popular culture or in a movie or something? Who is known like that? What would, uh, 
If your Olivier is Zell inspecting diamonds with magnification glasses in the marathon man, don't hang those off your tit. Or unless you want to balance <laughs> out the weight and go clip clip on two nipple rings and then hang them down the center, then sure you've compartmentalized the pressure and you can do that. No. These are my thoughts. <laughs> if we're looking to end the show on anything, I don't think I get more cogent than that. Yeah, no, no, I think that's uh, almost as good as the interview was ending on that right there, sir. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Dennis Miller Option, exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. (laughs) 